You are listening to episode three of the Almost Sideways podcast. On this episode, Terry welcomes guest host Zach as we review Logan Lucky, Good Time, and The Hitman's Bodyguard. We also look at our most anticipated films of September, as well as some landmark anniversaries being celebrated. In honor of the new film It, our power rankings center on Stephen King adaptations, and our Oscar trivia looks at the 1997 Oscars. All that is coming up next on the Almost Sideways podcast. Here we go. Give me a go, no go for launch. There is a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I was going to say something that was not true. Obviously, I agree. We are go for launch. All right, everybody, welcome to the Almost Sideways podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If I were to make a power ranking of ways Todd would spend his Labor Day weekend, in my top 100 would not be going camping and being completely shut off from all things movies and college football. However, that is what he is doing. So uh, he is not here for our podcast this week. In his place, we have our uh, our guest host, Mr. Zach Saltz, all the way from Kansas. How's it going, Zach? Uh, not too bad, Terry. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's pretty hot here in Portland. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful. I hear it's not so hot there. It's a beautiful 85 degrees here. It's cool out. You know, I had to put on a sweatshirt today. Oh, it was a hundred here, and it's supposed to be the same for the next couple days. But you know what's wonderful about here is that the Jayhawks are one and zero. We actually beat a team last night. Really, really. Southeast Missouri State. Uh, we're, but you know what? No, you know, baby steps, right? We're we're prepping for next week's big uh big showdown between uh, Nebraska and Oregon out here. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm all about uh, Justin Herbert, and uh, you know he's a Sheldon alum, but that's okay. And uh, you know we're gonna make up for last year. I uh, I hope not. I hope not. We we got a young team uh, at Nebraska, but I think we can pull it off. No more. Anyways, that's. That's enough about sports. We're here to talk movies. I love this movie so much. He saved the day! Movie reviews! Uh, we're going to start by talking about what's been uh, dubbed as one of the surprise hits of the summer uh, that came out a few weeks ago, and that is Steven Soderbergh's latest project to take him out of retirement, and that is Logan Lucky, the hillbilly heist movie in a lot of ways. Zach, I'm going to let you start out. I know you've got some strong opinions about this movie, so why don't you tell us what it's about and what you thought. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Well, um, it's a few notes before we maybe launch too far into the movie. It's Steven Soderbergh's first movie in about four years, right? Uh, he announced that he was uh, temporarily retiring or indefinitely retiring from directing, and so uh, his last movie before uh, this one was Behind the Condelabra, which was a great uh, made-for-HBO movie with Matt Damon and Michael Douglas telling the story of Liberace. Um, and I was pretty excited for Logan Lucky. It was thrilling to see him come out of retirement. Um, maybe we'll talk about that. There's a little bit of controversy with this film regarding who the actual screenwriter is for this film. A lot of people feel as though it's a pseudonym uh, with Soderbergh actually penning the screenplay, but no one really knows. Um, and I got to say, going into it, uh, I was pretty excited. I liked the first 10 minutes of it. I liked the setup. 
Um, I didn't really care if it was too much like Ocean's Eleven because I'm a huge fan of Ocean's Eleven. I think it's one of Soderbergh's best films. But honestly, I was fairly disappointed by the film. I thought it had, uh, like I said, a good setup. I was interested in where the characters were going. But as the story went along, and we'll maybe get into more of the details about it, I felt as though the movie got a little redundant, uh, a little uh, repetitive. I felt like the main characters didn't have very strong motivations for the heist that they were uh, attempting to pull off. I didn't really connect with them. Uh, the, the character I did connect with was a supporting character, the Daniel Craig character. Um, and overall, I just felt as though the movie, it, it was interesting to watch, uh, I guess. I didn't really get too involved with it. There were times that it was boring. Um, but overall, it was a fairly forgettable Soderbergh effort. I don't, I don't think I'm going to be thinking about this movie uh, 12 months from now. Um, I like that Soderbergh has returned to the cinema. I want to see more of what he does. I realize he's a chameleon. He's willing to do an experiment with any form, any genre. Um, and I really admire him for the tenacity of going into this. But uh, in the end, it was very mediocre. I give it a high two or low two and a half. So you were pretty disappointed by the film then? Well, I wouldn't say it was his, it was his worst effort. I know he's, he's sometimes delved into territory that was way out of his control, like full frontal. Um, a couple of other examples from the from the 90s uh his his version of um Kafka was a mess um so again i give him props for exploring in different genres different forms but uh this time i wasn't too involved in the story um i i think you know he he made it difficult for himself by all the obvious similarities to Ocean's 11 uh, there are undeniable comparisons to Ocean's 11 in this film and there were numerous times when i thought Ocean's Eleven was far more entertaining, so maybe, you know, you don't review the movie uh, compared to another movie, so standing alone, you know, maybe uh, I should think about it separately, but it, it was just undeniable, the, the comparisons, and so for me it just didn't stack up. I actually have to agree with you. I was pretty disappointed by this film, too. I wow. thought I thought the first half was boring. The setup was not... I, I did not think the setup was really that interesting. Uh, once they got to the speedway and started the heist, things started to pick up a little bit. Um, but like you said, the characters didn't really have much development. I didn't really care about them. Um, it felt like, like you said, uh, it was a dumbed-down hillbilly version of Ocean's Eleven in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, the only character, like you said, that was worth anything was Joe Bang, was Daniel Joe Craig's Bang. character. And mm -hmm. Daniel Craig gave, like, the best performance of his life, and I loved him in this. I, it, it reminded me of, um, a performance early on in his career, um, from The Jacket, the Adrian Brody, Kira Knightley psycho thriller. Oh, I never saw that. He plays a very small supporting it. character in it, and he steals the show. And it's the exact same thing he does in Logan Lucky. It's this small supporting character that's offbeat, well, it's a little weird, and he steals the show. And you could maybe say that he does the same thing in Munich, too. He's the most memorable character in Munich, if um, memory serves. But, you know, the, the, and, and that creates a real problem in the movie because you're supposed to identify with the Channing Tatum character. You know, he's the, the, the sort of Danny Ocean in the whole scheme that they develop. But as you kind of pointed out, his motivations for stealing this money are not fleshed out at all. Early in the film, he's let go from his job because they think that he's trying to scheme uh, his insurance providers um, by not reporting an injury he's had. That is not 
ample motivation to go and steal this amount of money at the Speedway. That is just not good. Now, maybe Terry Benedict stealing your girlfriend, that's good motivation, okay? But not that they're going to lay him off because of his bum foot. That is not good enough motivation. The people he should be mad at in this movie are his ex-wife, played by Katie Holmes, who's now married to Roy from The Office. Maybe if he was mad at them, maybe he could steal some money from his car dealership. In fact, as we were watching the movie, I have to give credit to my wife, Sammy, for pointing this out. She said that she thought the reason why he was stealing money was because there was a line in, in the movie when, when uh, uh, Channing Tatum tells them, I'm going to hire a good lawyer. She thought he, he was going to steal money to maybe pay for a lawyer. But no, there's no motivation for him to steal this money, except for this long-running streak, apparently, of, of bad luck for, for the Logan family, which is poorly developed and just not enough uh, character motivation. Well, and, and it's it's this luck of... Or streak of bad luck for the Logan family. Uh, but then That's you not hear, well you know, established at all. You no, even, not at all. You don't even all. know what the bad luck is. I mean, okay, yeah, so the, the Adam Driver character is lacking a hand. Uh, you know, Which there's he a scene lost early in, on in, 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 in Iraq. Yeah. There's a scene early on in the movie where the uh, the Seth MacFarlane character, who's this big-time celebrity, comes into their bar. By the way, and he, completely yes. wasted character. Oh, completely. Completely wasted. Completely. Completely. I mean, he, he shows so he up and it's the... like, okay, here he is. And then he does absolutely nothing. Right. Uh, he's good for, you know, two scenes where he's this over-the-top caricature. But he comes into the bar in the first scene, and he insults uh, Adam Driver's hand. And uh, the Adam Driver and Channing Tatum characters proceed to kick his ass and blow up his car. Just for saying that, you know, maybe he isn't the most skilled bartender because he happens to be only having one hand. It just seemed a little excessive. It, it made me feel like they were kind of bullies. I, well, and I kind of get that, standing up for your brother, but, yeah, I, I, I thought he was just completely wasted in this whole thing. I The funny thing is, I kind of liked all the characters. I just didn't get why it was all coming together. Like, there's the line early on where Adam Driver uh, says when Channing Tatum is, is giving him the idea, he says, my life of crime is over. What life of crime? What is he talking about? We don't know. What? 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 No, we don't know. We don't know any... We don't understand this character at all. Okay, can I... And we also need to talk about a few other things in this movie, okay? So, this, for those of you who haven't seen it, and, you know, you should see every movie that comes out, and Soderbergh's a great director. You know, he has carte blanche with me. I'll see anything he does. But this movie involves... The heist in this movie involves a, a, two characters being removed out of prison to go to the site of the heist. So, the way that they get out of prison is by basically forging this fake prison riot. And, but, but that still doesn't explain the fact that somehow the character knows to go to the bathroom, take out a paper towel dispenser, and somehow there's this system of tunnels in the prison. How does he know that? How does he know that there's this elaborate system? How do they communicate with the two characters that are in jail, but between them and the characters that aren't in jail? This elaborate, detailed plan that needs months of, of work and refinement and extreme detail, but there's no communication between them. In fact, they establish that the Channing Tatum character doesn't even have a phone. That's repeated throughout the movie. <laughs> Well, and again, and again, you, I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta compare it to Ocean's Eleven because it's, it's there, right? The comparisons are there whether you want to admit it or not. And what makes Ocean's Eleven so great is you've got all these characters, you understand their motivations, and right. then you have this heist that it shows how they've, dis how they've planned every single little step of this intricate plan that 
this brilliant mastermind in Danny Ocean has put together and then they execute it to perfection and then you see some of the little twists along the way that they've had planned the whole time this one it's just like let's rob the speedway and then they show up and they just know everything that they're supposed to do and exactly. they do it and it was conceivable in Ocean's yeah. Eleven that they exactly. could build a model a model safe. I mean, they show that in the movie how they get the intel. They hire, you know, they hire Casey Affleck and, and Scott Kahn and they go in and get intel about the safe. There's no scenes like that in this movie. The only thing that we see is in the first scene, Channing Tatum's crew beneath the speedway accidentally uncovers the safe. And that's the part of the movie where I thought, well, okay, this is kind of interesting. We'll see where this goes. But there's no process ever shown. There's There's no, like... You know, in Ocean's Eleven, there's a lot of scenes where they're doing intel, they're going undercover. There's nothing like that in this movie. It goes straight to the heist. And the heist is interesting for the most part, but it is so, as you said, unbelievable, inconceivable, and improbable that uh, it just makes Ocean's Eleven look that much more perfect and succinct in contrast. It was a complete coincidence that this thing was actually pulled off. Oh, totally. Because um, you, you had all these... All these, and by the way, spoiler alerts as we're going spoiler. along because, it, yeah, they're going to come out. Um, but as they're going along and they run into the two dumbest security guards in, on, the a, in, on the planet in a venue holding a couple hundred thousand people and, and distributing or in bringing in a couple, you know, tens of millions of dollars in this whole thing or however much it was. Oh, yeah, and that's another thing. They don't count how much money there ever was. They make a point to say in the movie that they never keep track of how much money was there. So, you know, in Ocean's Eleven, the, they have that, you know, they write down how much is there. It's never pointed out in this movie because they don't care, I guess. Well, and, and how do you, and how do you, the way it's pulled off is because he gives some of it back. So the, the Speedway just takes the insurance write off? Right, that's the way the end. Okay, so if we're going to get into that, we need to, if if we're going to get really into these spoilers, we should talk about one other thing in this movie, which is the Hillary Swank character. So Hillary Swank is in this movie. You Again, wouldn't know why? it through the first why? hour and a half. <laughs> she comes after the climax of the movie, which is the heist. Okay, so at this point we're thinking we've seen the coolest stuff in the movie. Um, we've had this horribly cliched scene where Shane Tatum uh, has gone to see his daughter's uh, beauty pageant performance of uh, uh, Take Me Home Country Roads, which, by the way, is the most corny and cliche scene that Soderbergh has ever done. I can't believe he stooped that low. Um, that's like Kevin Smith and Jersey Girl. I mean, that's just horrible. Okay, so this Hillary Swank character. Okay, so we get to Hillary Swank. So she figures out basically this whole scheme. You know, she is smarter than all the other FBI agents. She's smarter than everyone. That's great. And then the movie's last scene basically shows her as the only one that knows what really happened. And she's going to take down the Logans who got away with this crime of the century. That is the exact same ending as Ocean's Eleven. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same idea as the two bodyguards of Andy Garcia driving away with George Clooney and Brad Pitt and, and Julia uh, Roberts out of the prison. It's the exact same thing. And it's so unsatisfying and so corny. And the thing is, that's most frustrating about it is that Soderbergh must have had the idea for this scene in his head. 
but he has 30, 25 to 30 minutes of useless Hillary Swank scenes just to get to that one moment that he thinks is so awesome that Hillary Swank is there in the bar and talks to Adam Driver. It's just, it's a, the setup is so not worth the payoff in my mind. And, and I didn't even consider the, the connection to Ocean's Eleven and how it's the same scene, but you're right. Oh, it's right. the exact same thing. Yeah, what, what I was thinking is it, is it was a, it was a poorly done cheap knockoff of the ending to Hell or High Water from last year. Yes. Where you had Very this true. moment. It's almost the same of, thing there yeah, too. You ha- but that was perfectly done because you have well, this moment where they come. I, love that I, I thought it was because you had this moment where they come together, they chat, and then it's left completely unresolved, but you don't know exactly what's going to happen from then. This one, it's just she shows up in their bar. It's what so what are you saying? I, I mean, it was, it was. It was. Complete- a, it was. A, it, it was supposed to be a payoff scene. It was supposed to. It was supposed to be the whole purpose of the Hillary Swank character, which is to show that even though they got away with this crime, they're still unlucky, and it just didn't pay off. It was corny and labored. And and the other thing that, if you think about the ending here, you are led to believe if you actually follow everything through all the way that Joe Bang left his two brothers high and dry because they were the two morons in on this on this whole heist that were the ones that you know did all the other stuff and they were left high and dry in the end and joe bang got his money and they didn't and they were his brothers so so is he gonna abandon family just because he got the money uh it made no sense it was it was disappointing, but see here's here's the question you have to ask yourself. You know, do are you are we assessing this film on its own merits, or are we too invested in the comparisons to Ocean's Eleven? Because you gotta judge a movie based on what you see, not on what you don't see. I do think there's some good material. You know, there's a couple good lines here and there. I think it's very funny when Adam Driver's arm gets pulled off and put in the vacuum. I mean, that's a you know that's a funny moment. And overall, you know, I I, I like that uh, Soderbergh is trying to go to a different part of the country show these people in, you know, relative economic uh, depression. Uh, there's a nice line about how, I mean, there's an inconceivable scene where they explain that there's no uh, patrolman on the highway for 40 miles, but I think that kind of underscores some of the economic realities of the region. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Soderbergh made a movie in 2006 called Bubble, which also took place in West Virginia and was also very much about the economic necessity of the characters and how da- downtrodden they were. A much better film, but I do like that Soderbergh has some kind of social investment and commitment in the movie, it just kind of gets covered up by the whole heist scheme. So maybe put another way, I would like to see a movie with these characters, but maybe not about a heist. I haven't seen Bubble. However, if you remember, I did buy you your DVD copy of that. So you're I don't welcome. remember that. Okay, well, thank you. That's an excellent. That's probably my favorite Soderbergh movie. I was wondering if we were going to rank our favorite Soderbergh movies. It's it's my favorite, and I remember when I told Todd that I was going to have the actress from that uh, win my best actress in 2006. And by the way, Soderbergh found found her. She was a non-professional. She worked at a KFC in West Virginia, and that's how Soderbergh find, found her. Todd laughed in my face when I, I told him that was my choice, but it's a great performance. Yeah. I, I agree. You got to try and judge a film by its own merit. You can't judge it by comparing it to another film. One of the things that I will say that is on its own merit that bothered me about this film, that um, bothers me about a lot of films sometimes. You're right. There were some funny parts. There were some great parts. But you know what? All of them were spoiled by the trailer. 
Like, oh, I every don't the good line in that movie was spoiled by the trailer. And it was like, oh, it's coming up, it's coming up. Oh, yep, now they're going to drop the line from the trailer. Oh, yep, that was the one laugh in this scene. Kay. Well, that's kind of interesting, because I, I don't remember the trailer at all, so what that means, the fact that we have similar opinions, means that the trailer didn't even really spoil it. It was still kind of a bad movie on its own. Another yeah. note I wrote down here, and this is just a sort of a personal note, but um, it feels like Matthew McConaughey should have been in this movie. Where was he? <laughs> I think he could have really dramatically improved this movie. I don't know how, but he should have just been in there somewhere. Maybe playing the warden. I don't know. Although Dwight Yoakam was pretty good. Dwight Yoakam was pretty good. Um... Maybe McConaughey should have been Hillary Swank's character. Can't you see him as the sheriff but in this? That would, but that would ruin the last shot, Terry. And Soderbergh is all, or excuse me, his pseudonym, the British lady that wrote the movie, whatever her name is, uh, uh, Soderbergh in disguise. Uh, you know, he, he would say like that ruins the last shot of my movie, and he's obsessed with this stupid last shot in the bar where Hillary Swank's talking to Adam Driver. It, it's not that interesting, yo. Move on. My my theory and the movie that... thirty minutes sooner. My theory is Donald Kaufman wrote the movie, but that's oh, just that's, me. Yeah, that is possible. Um, I I, uh, I didn't get to give my rating on this. I gave it a two and a half star, so we're right in the same ballpark here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you and I both want to be generous because there's asp the characters are likable, and we like Soderbergh, and we like the actors in it. It's just uh, empty at a fundamental level. Yeah, I went into this with really high hopes. It was It, it became... As going into it, one of my most anticipated movies of the summer, and it did not fulfill what I was hoping it would. And what is with all the critics loving this movie? This is It has like a 93 on Rotten Tomatoes. I, I don't know. understand that. Why don't I, we get Todd on here? If you're saying that Todd had a difference of opinion, I want to hear from someone that liked this film. I know. Right? Todd, I, Todd gave it a three star, which is impressive because it takes a lot for Todd to give a, a film a thumbs up. So... Yeah, we'll we'll have to talk to Slant. Todd on the next podcast and see what he has to say. Slant Magazine gave it thumbs up. They hate everything. I mean, I was shocked. I mean, some of the people that have been defenders of this film, maybe maybe they're just trying to be contrarian. I'm not really sure, or maybe they're just big Soderbergh fans. But uh, boy, this was uh, this was kind of a mess. Or, or, may, or maybe Daniel Craig's performance just got him got it that far. No, you know what's kind of interesting is James Bardinelli, who's an online critic I really like, uh, he gave the movie three stars and said the worst part about it was the Daniel Craig performance. He said it was distracting. So there you go. It's, it's odd. But. Well, I mean, it, it is weird seeing James Bond. I mean, have, you, have we ever seen a James Bond play a character like this? I mean, it, it, it is the furthest from James Bond you could possibly get. Um, maybe Sean Connery in uh, The Rock, you know? I mean, he was also a convict, kind of like, uh, you know, Daniel Well, Craig. well, but, but Sean Connery in The Rock Womack, basically... you bastard. He, oh, sorry, that that basically that is James Bond, right? Isn't that yeah. the whole theory, that he is James Bond and he's been captured and is living in, uh, in Alcatraz? Or, or, or had escaped if from Alcatraz? If you're going to San Francisco, <laughs> Jane, your father's here. Womack! You bastard. <laughs> they were escaped convicts. Oh, uh, this is completely oh, spiraled sorry. out of control. <laughs> That's okay. No, there's there's never a bad time for uh, the rock quotes, so um, so I'm good. Why, of course you are, Stanley Goodspeed. Okay, so to, to uh, wrap up this, uh, this discussion of Logan Lucky, I'm giving it two and a half stars. Zach, you said two stars? Uh, two stars, and I do want to note that in the year 2017, we've had a movie called Logan, a movie called Lucky, and a movie called Logan Lucky. That is pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive. 
So let's uh, let's move on from there. So that was our movie we were reviewing together. Let's look at a, uh, a couple movies that we have seen that we want to talk about and highlight um, that we've seen recently. I haven't had a chance to get to the theater much recently. I'm a teacher, school starting up, and so I haven't gotten there much. Um, but one thing I did do a lot this summer is I did a lot of double features. Because when I did get to the theater, I wanted to see um, as much as I could while I was there. So um, a couple weeks ago, I did a double feature. Logan Lucky was part of that double feature, a film I was really looking forward to, and like I already said, did not turn out as well as I thought it would. The first part of that double feature was a film I wasn't really expecting much out of, and it slightly it exceeded expectations, and I, I enjoyed it potentially more, even though it wasn't as good of a movie, and that's The Hitman's Bodyguard. This is a movie starring Ryan Reynolds and uh, Samuel L. Jackson. It is a film about this uh, evil dictator of a European country played by Gary Oldman, who is uh, on trial for his, war his crimes against humanity, basically. And all of his witnesses have been hunted down by his henchmen and killed except for one there's only one witness left that can um that can put him away for the rest of his life and that is samuel jackson's character who is a hitman and he uh and he has something on gary oldman's character but they're now after him because they've pulled him out of prison to take him to uh to give this uh, testimony in doing so, we find out that Gary Oldman has moles in the CIA and the Secret Service and whatnot, and so no place is safe, and so they turn to a privately contracted uh, bodyguard played by Ryan Reynolds, who has almost been killed by Samuel Jackson several times throughout his time protecting different people. And we see this kind of buddy um, road trip as they travel... Um, across Europe to try and get Samuel Jackson to this place in time. It's a goofy movie. It's got a lot of silly laughs. Um, Ryan Reynolds is playing Ryan Reynolds kind of similar to how he does in a lot of his movies now, um, which isn't a bad thing because I think he's very funny. You have Samuel Jackson being the comedic Samuel Jackson doing his thing, which is pretty funny too. They keep on throwing in these love stories that kind of get in the way. There's this love story between Ryan Reynolds and one of the Secret Service agents that um, is really kind of unnecessary, but at the same time is his motivation for doing it because he wants to impress her. Honestly, the best part of the movie is Samuel Jackson's wife, played by Selma Hayek, who is hilarious. The only problem is she only has about five minutes of screen time. But it's a fun movie. It's it's the type of dumb comedy you expect from a summer blockbuster movie. It didn't do great great at the box office, but honestly, right now, nothing's doing great at the box office. It looks like it's probably going to win its third week in a row, which is really sad. Um, but I'm giving it a solid two stars. Uh, if you want a good laugh, if you want an hour and a half, hour 40 minutes of some decent entertainment, shut your brain off. You can go see Hitman's Bodyguard. It's not necessarily worth going in the theaters. Wait for it to get on Netflix. It's worth a watch. Okay. That sounds very interesting. The movie that I'm going to review this uh, month is the movie that Todd said was his most anticipated movie of the month of September. I would probably put it in that category for myself as well, and that is 
Good Time, the movie by uh, the Softie brothers, Benny and Josh. Um, this is a movie starring Robert Pattinson, a.k.a. Edward from uh, the uh, Twilight series. Uh, and he plays kind of a low-bit sort of uh, thief, um, sort of a uh, low-level criminal. And uh, the movie takes place over the course of, I don't know, maybe two or three days. It's kind of hard to tell the chronology in the movie, but it takes place in New York City. And the idea is that Robert Pattinson's character uh, has uh, had this kind of life of crime with his brother, who has sort of mental disability, a uh, mental disability, and he's actually played in the movie by one of the co-directors, uh, Benny Safdie. And so, the movie basically um, it shows this incredibly tense and very well uh, acted and well put together heist scene at the very beginning, and uh, the younger brother gets uh, taken to jail. So it's Pat, Robert Pattinson's job to kind of take him out of jail and flee from the cops, and it takes place really the majority of the movie takes place over one night. And, you know, it's similar to, I, I would compare it a little bit to Scorsese's After Hours or some of those movies that take place over the course of one crazy evening. And they meet a lot of very interesting people. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee plays his girlfriend. Uh, Barkhad Opti from, uh, we know him from uh, Captain Phillips, plays I'm the captain a security now. guard. Yes, he plays a very memorable character in this movie named Dash, the park security guard. He's a security guard at this very strange amusement park where there's roller coasters and, uh, you know, displays of people doing very R-rated things in them. There, it's just a sort of a bizarre, uh, visceral, sight and sound experience. Um, not just the night that they go through, but the whole experience watching the film, too. Uh, the film has a very kinetic, frantic atmosphere. There's a lot of, like, uh, electro uh, beats with it. Um, it's uh, really in your face. It's not a movie you're ever going to get bored watching. It's always consistently interesting, and you're really excited to see kind of where it goes next. The only flaw I really have in the movie is that I think it ends a little too abruptly. I would have liked to have seen where the Safis had these characters going a little bit deeper, uh, because you really kind of get involved in their, uh, their story, why they've gone into this life of crime, who they're trying to flee from. Actually, it's more well-established in a Good Time why they need money, uh, more so than in Logan Lucky. So there's a, a nicer back story there. Uh, but some really excellent performances, beautiful set pieces, great cinematography. The Softies have a style that's very unique. If you've seen any of their work, such as Heaven Knows What, you know, it's an immediately identifiable style, but it's a solid three-star film that I would encourage uh, any, anyone looking for a, a fun, sort of in-your-face, uh, you know, action, kind of low uh, action thriller type genre um, uh, to check out. It's not playing everywhere, but it will get a nationwide release here pretty soon. There's kind of been some rumblings around this film about Robert Pattinson uh, potentially getting uh, some Oscar consideration. Do you think that's uh, justified in the potential? Absolutely. I don't know if this film is big enough to be an Oscar film, but he nails his American accent. A lot of people have compared this to kind of a 1970s Walter Hill, Sidney Lumet type film. Uh, in this movie, Pattinson looks uh, and feels a lot like a Pacino character from the 70s. He looks like uh, Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, it's a fr frantic, sort of kinetic role, and he's excellent in it. He really is uh, establishing himself as an outstanding actor. Yeah, I, I, uh, I love what he's been doing because sometimes it's so hard for these franchise guys to break out of the stereotype that they are have been around what they what they're known for and like you even said he's known as edward from the twilight movies but um and we talked about it on one of the earlier podcasts i think he's he's really starting to break out of that uh that niche that he he could have gotten stuck in
Absolutely. He was great in a movie called The Rover. I know Todd's a big fan of that movie. He was also in a David Cronenberg movie called Cosmopolis that wasn't that great of a movie, but he was the best part of it. I mean, he's really establishing himself as a very versatile and multifaceted actor. He's He can play heroes, he can play villains, he can play morons, he can play intelligent characters. Um, you know, I couldn't think of a lot of other actors that could have pulled off this role because you really need kind of agility and, and uh, you know, to be in good shape to, to play it because, you know, he's on his feet the whole movie, but there also needs to be an emotional attachment and you have it with him and uh, he's he's really outstanding in it. I hope the Academy remembers his performance uh, come uh, January. Alright, great. So we've got uh, three stars from Zach for Good Time and two stars from me for The Hitman's Bodyguard. Moving forward, we're going to start to look at, um, since we're at the start of September, look at what we have uh, coming up the, uh, the next month and what we're looking forward to seeing in theaters over the next month. So, Zach, why don't you start out by giving us your most anticipated film of September? All right. Well, I'm not the kind of person that typically goes to uh, the big-budget action uh, blockbuster movies. I tend to try to find uh, uh, low-budget, international, independent niche films. And uh, there is an animated film coming out that it perfectly fits that category. The film is called Loving Vincent, and it is done by a pair of animators. Um, and the film is uh, an animated film that portrays uh, some aspects of the life of Vincent van Gogh. Um, that alone is not what's unique about the film. What's unique about the film is that it's the world's, at least the studio is billing it as the world's first fully oil-painted feature film. There are 65,000 painted frames over the course of the film, and there were uh, hundreds of artists that uh, put together these oil-based uh, paintings for it. Um, actually, relatively few of the stills survived because every time they had to make a new still, they had to erase the previous one. And if you watch the trailer for it, it looks absolutely remarkable. The only thing I can really compare it to is uh, the Linklater films like uh, Waking Life or A Scanner Darkly. And this film is rotoscoped, so there are actors in it, but the, it, act, it looks exactly like a Vincent van Gogh painting brought to life, and it is absolutely uncanny. I cannot wait to see this film. Um, I'm a big fan of animation, and it looks like this has been a painstaking effort by many, many hundreds of different artists, um, and it's great to see uh, the work of uh, an artist like Van Gogh getting spotlighted like this in um, a format like film. Um, we haven't really had a lot of great films about Vincent Van Gogh. The one that comes to my mind is Vincent and Theo by Robert Altman, which was a very uh, obscure and not well-seen film, but I am uh, super pumped to see Loving Vincent. I hope that it catches on. I hope people realize that film can be an artistic medium and that animation has a unique potential to express uh, just so much visual creativity, and I hope um, people see it. I hope it's great. I cannot imagine being disappointed by it, especially, you know, an great animated movies like this uh, are never let down. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I hadn't heard of that one yet, but I'm des definitely going to have to uh, check out the trailer for it. This month, for me, actually has a lot of films that really have me intrigued and have perked my interest. From everything from the uh, the Kingsman sequel to uh, the new Tom Cruise film American Made, Lucky, which we mentioned earlier, is is supposed to debut uh, sometime this month. Uh, but the film that has me just absolutely fascinated is uh, the new Darren Aronofsky project, Mother. This film has so much buzz around it, and for good reason. It, uh, After watching the trailer, you are intrigued and fascinated, 
even though you have no idea what is going on. But it looks like an incredible psychological thriller, um, very similar to one of his uh, last projects and most successful projects, Black Swan. Jennifer Lawrence continues to be the it girl, really, of this decade, and it looks like if this turns out to be what it could be, she might end up having another Oscar nomination out of this. It looks like an incredible thrill ride, and everything that I've heard about this film says that it is an experience that will leave you on the edge of your seat, and I'm so excited to see it. I've loved so much of Darren Aronofsky's work, uh, going back to uh, Pi, Requiem for a Dream. I'm not a big fan of Fountain, uh, but The Wrestler was great. Black Swan I loved and was one of my top films of that year. And I'm also one of the bigger fans of uh, his Russell Crowe uh, Noah adaptation. Um, but Mother just looks completely insane, and I can't wait to, uh, to sit in the theater and experience what it's going to be all about. Yeah, I, I was intrigued by the trailer as well. Um, and Aronofsky is, uh, of course, a brilliant director. I think uh, you kind of hit it on the nose. There are times when he is a little overly ambitious, um, but I like seeing him go in this direction of uh, sort of maybe horror or something kind of supernatural. The trailer to me kind of looked like a modern-day interpretation of, like, Rosemary's Baby a little bit. Mm. Um, and it's nice to see Jennifer Lawrence go out, go expand um, that way, too. I'm intrigued by it. Uh, I was thoroughly disappointed by Noah. I thought it was junk. I really was not a fan of it at all. Um, maybe junk's a little harsh, but uh, I think he's been kind of hit or miss. I didn't love Black Swan the way other people did, but I will certainly give Mother a chance. Um, I think Aronofsky is, uh, you know, as Mickey Rourke said in his infamous, you know, 2008 Independent Spirit Award speech, you know, he's going to kick your ass when you go on a set with him. And so I'm sure these actors were, uh, well, we should have a whole podcast about that acceptance speech. Um, <laughs> I, I would imagine it was quite an ordeal making this movie. Looking at the trailer, it seems, you know, uh, pretty amazing. Javier Bardem is also in it. Uh, he looks pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put my name in the, the category of being excited for it, too. Yeah, I, I mean, you got Javier Bartem, Michelle Pfeiffer, Ed Harris. I mean, it's got a great cast. And yeah, I, I, I can't wait. He's one of those that comes out with movies uh, far enough apart that it feels like an event when it when one does come out. Um, yeah, he, we should also note that there's an exclamation mark at the end of this movie. Yeah. So it's very important to remember. It's not mother, it's mother! Mother! So that's the way you have to say it. <laughs> All right, so those are our most anticipated coming up in the next month, and hopefully in the, sometime in the next month we'll be able to tell you what we thought of them. All right, so we've looked forward at the next month. Now let's look back. As we prepare for September, we look at some of the upcoming anniversaries for some of our, uh, of our notable films that will be coming up um, this month. And, uh, Zach, why don't you get us started off uh, on this one as well? Okay, well, I'm going to start with a 30-year anniversary of a film that you probably have not seen before or ever heard of before, but it's an outstanding film. The film is called Morris, and it's spelled like Maurice, but it's actually pronounced Morris. And it was a film released in September of 1987. It was a Merchant Ivory Productions, and if you're not familiar, Merchant Ivory did some of the best uh, work, uh, specifically adaptations of Ian e. Forrester novels and, and British novels. Um, with uh, Ruth Powder Jabra, they did Howard's End and The Remains of the Day. This was one of their 
lesser known features and they typically independently financed their films so they didn't always get wide releases but Morris is based on a Forrester novel and it's about a, a, cl uh, a closeted British man living in this kind of repressed uh, Victorian society at the turn of the century in Britain and uh, it's probably most notable today because it was the first big role for Hugh Grant. Now he doesn't play the main character in the movie he plays the one of the first suitors of the character Morris, who is actually played by, in an excellent role by James Wilby. Uh, but the movie is really um, pretty blunt in its depiction of homosexuality and also just how taboo it is for turn-of-the-century Britain. Um, it's not an explicit movie by any means, but if you think about the context of Victorian Britain and the context of movies in 1987, it's pretty cutting edge for what it depicts. And uh, I think if you're a fan of period pieces, you're a fan of Hugh Grant, and particularly uh, the Merchant Ivory films, which many of which are getting theatrical 4K re-releases by the Cohen Media Group. Last year I saw Howard's End at a movie theater. It was spellbinding. Um, I would encourage you to check out Morris because uh, it's a really fine piece of work. Um, I have not read the novel. I've read several Forrester novels, but for, uh, Morris, if you know Forrester, was actually published uh, posthumously because Forrester was also gay, and that uh, you know the, the reputation would have really kind of doomed him if Morris had been uh, published prior to his death. So, uh, it's an excellent film adaptation and one that you probably haven't heard of, but is worth checking out. I haven't seen Morris, um, but I I do enjoy Merchant and Ivory films. Um... I wasn't a huge fan of Howard's End, but I absolutely loved Remains of the Day. I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can find that one for sure. Uh, my first uh, anniversary um, is probably one you have seen. You'll start to get catch a theme here. Zach will talk about films that you haven't heard of and you haven't seen, and I will talk about films that you have heard of and you probably have seen. Um, but my 20-year anniversary is uh, is L.A. Confidential. Um, the uh, crime drama thriller uh, starring Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, Kim Basinger, Danny DeVito, uh, a whole cast of characters uh, directed by the late Curtis Hansen, written by Brian Helgland. Um, it's one of my all-time favorite films. As you travel through the twists and turns of this story and experience life in this time period as it's kind of this period piece in 1950s LA. Uh, you see the corruption in the police department and the ending. I remember the first time that I uh, that I saw this ending and I I did not see it coming. You have Kevin Spacey's character who finally comes to uh, comes to terms with his uh, crisis of conscience and and um, figures everything out and is able to leave the clue so that Guy Pierce can figure everything out. Oh, it's, I just love this movie from start to finish. I can watch it over and over again. I can't believe it's 20 years old, but it's one of my all-time favorite films, LA Confidential. Yeah, um, I don't feel as though it's aged particularly well. I don't love it as much as you do, obviously. I do feel when, criti when it came out, critics absolutely went crazy over it because of how well it reflected the, fil the spirit of film noir. 
um, particularly yeah. with the Kim Basinger character, who, by the way, won an Oscar for it. Uh, one yeah. of the more unlikely turnarounds in her career because by the mid-90s she was basically bankrupt and, and was not getting any roles, and then two years later she found herself winning an Oscar for what was a sublime performance as this kind of Veronica Lake-type starlet. Um, and she's fantastic in the film, and I, and I would echo your sentiments about the performances overall. Um, to me, it's always kind of come off as more of an exercise in style more than substance. Maybe I'll, I'll re-watch it, though, because it, it is the 20-year anniversary. And uh, R.I.P. Curtis Hansen. He was a great, uh, great filmmaker. Made several uh, awesome films. Definitely was. Definitely was. And a great kind of debut to the world for Russell Crowe at the same time. That's very true. Yeah, began that kind of five-year run of outstanding film after outstanding film. All right, what, uh, what do you got for your other uh, anniversary here? Well, I've been kind of going back and forth on this, but I think what I'll do is I'm, I'm going to pick a, a film from 2007 that we're commemorating the 10-year anniversary of. We, I mentioned earlier in this podcast David Cronenberg. He made Cosmopolis, which was an unsuccessful film but had a nice performance by uh, Robert Pattinson. Ten years ago, um, Cronenberg had a film come out called Eastern Promises, starring Viggo Mortensen and Naomi Watts. And what's kind of interesting about this film, um, maybe sort of a personal anecdote, uh, Terry and I went to college together. That's how we know each other. And one of the things we bonded over was just how awful a history of violence was. Um, yes! It, like, it was like so terrible! Laughably bad, and it's kind of funny that on this podcast we've also reviewed a movie that inexplicably gets great reviews, including a good review from Todd, and, and, and we just sort of see the movie and are like, what what, what are these people seeing? I um, still think we gotta, we gotta have a podcast coming up that has the three of us where we can just debate these films that we disagree on. History of violence, and, and Logan Lucky, and yeah, absolutely. What? Well, you know, and the history of violence came out in 2005, so that's not what we're commemorating. But I will say I'm willing to rewatch it. There are some bad movies I'm not willing to rewatch. I'm re willing to reevaluate the history of violence because maybe it went over my head. I don't know. But I do know that in 2007, 10 years ago this month, Cronenberg came out with his follow-up to A History of Violence, which also starred Viggo Mortensen, and was also a film that kind of looked at how uh, violence and aggression really shapes uh, personalities and also sort of kind of a culture around violence. And that film is Eastern Promises, which in my mind was a much more successful film. Uh, a really kind of gripping story that took place in London and starred Naomi Watts as this nurse and she comes across this kind of abandoned infant and uh, through this kind of uh, uh, de facto investigation that she does on her own, it leads her to the Russian KGB and uh, the Russian Mafia, particularly in London. And one of the lead mobsters that she comes across is Viggo Mortensen, who is just uh, brutal in this movie as this um, really self, uh, this, this ruthless kingpin in the mob. And, uh, you know, people, if you've seen the movie, you probably, the thing you most remember is the scene, the shower scene where Viggo Mortensen just kicks the guy's ass in this kind of Russian bathhouse. Um, it is a, a, a brutal role by Mortensen. He's awesome in it. He was nominated for an Oscar. To me, it's a much better role than his role in History of Violence. Uh, the movie has a, a great twist ending that you don't really see coming. Um, it it uh, has some ex excellent set pieces, beautifully photographed, and a movie that really stuck with me. Cronenberg, like Soderbergh, is a director who uh, oscillates between extreme highs and extreme lows, uh, and Eastern Promises is one of the films that he really nailed. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen this film, but um, one thing that I do remember about it is that I agree with you. It was a much better film than uh, than History of Violence. Uh, Viggo Mortensen was insane as this character, uh, much more believable than he was in History of Violence. He was nominated for the Oscar for that uh, for that performance. 
Yeah, I would I have mean, voted for him over Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, you know, I, I don't know, maybe sue me, whatever, but that's an unpopular opinion, but I thought he should have won Best Actor that year. That was an outstanding performance. You mean Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't deserve an Oscar every time he steps foot on screen? Uh, uh no. <laughs> um, yeah, I will have to go back and rewatch that one. It's been It's been way too long, for sure. My next anniversary is another one of my all-time favorite films, Technically, its debut was in October of 1992, but its um, uh, its wide release debut. However, its premiere was at the end of September, so I'm talking about it now. And that is this is the 25th anniversary of Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Um, the Gestapo tactics. Gestapo tactics. This was uh, uh, based on the uh, the incredible David Mamet play. Um, he also wrote the screenplay for this. It is one of the one of the greatest films of all time. I feel you've got one of the greatest casts of all time assembled here, with very a very small cast, but it's an amazing cast with Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin, Alan Arkin, Ed Harris, Kevin Spacey, Jonathan Price in a small role. You have uh, this incredible uh, this incredible cast with this incredible script it's one of the perfect storms uh it's endlessly quotable every character in it is endlessly fascinating at the same time uh where you have jack lemon as shelly the machine levine who's trying to prove that he's still got it as he sells real estate you've got you've got al pacino's ricky roma the new hotshot who's trying to make this big sale um Kevin Spacey, who's trying to keep them all together as the as the manager of the of the branch here. Um, Ed Harris is this hothead, and Dave Moss. You've got you've got Alan Arkin, who just kind of seems to meander and wander through everything that's going on. Um, and, but Alec Baldwin. I mean, Alec Baldwin gives possibly the best ten minutes of screen time of the '90s in his in his speech about always be closing, and. Uh, and how you're fired. <laughs> um, and of I, course, worth remembering, too, that he wasn't in the original play. This was a role that was written for the film. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that wasn't something that was supposed to be, or that was in the play. It was, yeah, just brought out for this. And it became the most iconic part of the film. Everything about this film I love, I could watch it every day and not be bored with it. Just incredible. Um, I may have to go watch it tonight. <laughs> I think that's a good idea. You know, I want to say some quotes from the film, but there's a lot of four-letter words, so I, I don't know if you can actually come watch, like, 30 seconds of the film without coming across the F word. But um, it is kind of interesting that you mentioned Alan Arkin. You know, in, in a lot of ways, he's the most moral character in the film. I think his character it's does true. kind of get ignored in a way, but he's really the only one that isn't a douchebag. I mean, he he calls out, you know, the, the BS that... For, for what it is, and uh, it's kind of unfortunate what happens to him, but it's, I guess it's unfortunate what happens to all of them. Yeah, absolutely, that's a good point, yeah. He's definitely kind of the moral compass of it all, and in a lot of ways, Ed Harris is his foil, and everybody else is kind of stuck somewhere in between. Absolutely. It is a great movie. Uh, it's it, it has aged pretty well, and now it's kind of a pop culture phenomenon, but it is worth remembering how how amazing it must have felt in 90, 1992 to have a cast like that. Uh, Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, uh, Alec Baldwin, a young Kevin Spacey. Uh, quite a remarkable uh, cast. It's basically the Golden State Warriors of casts for a 1992 film. <laughs> 
Yeah. All right. So we have. Uh, so to recap, we've got the the ten year right ten year anniversary of Eastern Promises. Correct. And then we have the uh, the twenty year anniversary of Ella Confidential, twenty five year anniversary of Glengarry Glen Ross, and the thirty year anniversary of Morris. All right. Moving on. It's time for our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah. Definitely. Exactly. Exactly. Power rankings. For this week's power rankings, uh, we are looking ahead at um, the film that's, I'm hoping, going to save the box office. The, the last couple weeks at the box office have been completely dismal. But I, I heard like the worst box office returns in like 17 years. It, it's It's been terrible. However, coming up this next week, we have um, It, the latest Stephen King adaptation to, uh, to hit theaters. Um, it looks creepy. Um, probably not Does some... Does it? How uh, many times can we play? Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, but it, it got us thinking, what are the greatest Stephen King adaptations that have, uh, that have come across? And there have been many... Uh, I was looking at his IMDb page. It was over 200 adaptations of different things that he's uh, written that have been made. So we're going to come up with our top five uh, Stephen King adaptations. Uh, let's start uh, with number five. I'll start this one off. And my number five Stephen King adaptation is the original version of Carrie. Uh Sissy Spacek kind of bursts on the scene as the title character. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember being completely entranced by this film and wondering where it was going to go. You've got um, the, the, the creepy mother character. It's, it's strange to see a guy like John Travolta in a small role like that as he's just starting out his career. Um, but in a lot of ways, Carrie kind of epitomizes what Stephen King is all about. Um, where it's it's this kind of twists and turns and building the suspense to have a this massive uh, climax at the end of at the end of the film that really jars you because of how you've gotten to uh, relate and know these characters throughout the film. So number my number five is Carrie. Yeah, it's a good film and a good way to start out a Stephen King list because it was the first. Uh real uh, Stephen King adaptation that made it big. Um, number five on my list is Misery from 1990, directed by Rob Reiner. Uh, really excellent adaptation of uh, not just a Stephen King novel, but a true, uh, well, sort of based on fact uh, it, 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 incident from King's life, uh, or maybe sort of hypothesized a little bit, but uh, Scott Kahn plays a writer conspicuously similar to Stephen King, who uh, gets in a pretty horrible traffic wreck in the middle of the snow and is nursed back to health by a kindly old nurse, a, a kindly lady nurse, played by uh, uh, Kathy Bates, an Academy Award-winning performance, Annie Wilkes, and uh, she, he gradually realizes that she's his number one fan, and things turn quite disturbing as the course of the movie runs through, and it's a really nice kind of psychological examination about fandom and uh, idolatry. I don't know, and 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 broken ankles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um... Uh, great film that will be coming up later on my list for sure. Um, number four on my list is possibly the most iconic of Stephen King adaptations. 
uh, when you think of Stephen King, one of the first things you think of is The Shining. And that's what's number four on my list. Jack Nicholson um, playing a character named Jack, uh, who slowly but surely starts to lose his mind in this in this hotel that's completely isolated from everything else that he's watching. Shelley Duvall gives an amazing performance as his wife. Um, it a lot of it's endlessly quotable from here's Johnny to uh, to Danny's not here, Mrs. Torrance. Uh, it's it's a great uh, great film, great thrill ride as you go through, and very similar to Carrie in the fact that it kind of builds up the suspense as you realize something's not quite right, and then blows up into this um, into this crazy climax at the end. Uh, yeah, what more can you say about it? It's an outstanding film. Um, it will probably appear on my list too later on. Um, number four on my list is a movie that is not as widely seen as the films we've mentioned so far. It's a film, uh, actually a very little seen film from 1985 called Cat's Eye, which is based on uh, Stephen King's novel. It's actually sort of an interesting film. It's actually three films. It's an anthology, and uh, it freaked me out as a kid watching it. It was one of the more milestone moments of my childhood, seeing uh, some, of, some of that film. The first story is about a smoker who's put in this program to try to quit his smoking addiction, and he's put through these uh, psychological tests that are kind of like Stanley Milgram experiments, where you, you know, they're very cruel and horrible experiments, um, but it's all with the idea of trying to cure his uh, addiction. The second story is about a guy who uh, finds himself on top of a building, and he has to basically try to get off the ledge of the building and uh, it's quite terrifying, especially if you have vertigo. But the third story is the best one. It's probably the most notable uh, and well-remembered one, and it's about uh, this little girl played by a young Drew Barrymore right off the heels of E.T., and she sees this goblin that comes up in the middle of her room. It literally lives in her wall, and then it, makes, it, it comes out of the wall and sucks the air out of her in the middle of the night. Uh, the stories are connected by this stray tabby cat who appears in all of them, and any time you can get an animal as the protagonist, it's always a good thing. But this was a genuinely frightening Stephen King movie that also had moments of humor in it, really uh, uniquely told, and uh, just a really well-done film. I had the pleasure of re recently revisiting it and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And it freaked me out as a kid, so there's always that. Yeah, I have not seen that movie. And I'm not a huge fan of the scary stuff, so maybe it's a good thing. Number three on my list, I think Stephen King might be at his best when he is not doing a stereotypical Stephen King story. And a great example of that is my number three film, which is The Green Mile. Um, this story of this prison uh, led uh, with the warden of Tom Hanks. Uh, you have David Morse in there and Barry Pepper as this group of, uh, of prison guards that are guarding death row. And Michael Clark Duncan plays John Coffey, this amazing or this prisoner who comes in that has these amazing skills and powers that no one really can understand or comprehend. Um, it's this incredibly subtle movie about getting to know this character and and what he is all about as he's getting ready to die. Um, it is a beautiful movie, a wonderful movie, like I said, a very subtle movie, and again, I think this is when some of Stephen King's work is at his best, especially when it is directed by Frank Darabont. Absolutely. Unless it's The Mist, then it's horrible. Correct. Um, Correct. 
<laughs> good to point out. Uh, the Green Mile would have been like number six or seven on my list. That's an outstanding movie. Uh, well put. Number three on my list is also a King adaptation that is not based on a horror novel. It's uh, The Hearts in Atlantis from 2001, a movie that, uh, again, has sort of been overlooked. But like The Green Mile, is about this sort of cosmic connection between two unlikely characters. And Hearts in Atlantis takes place in 1960, and it's about this young boy growing up, his name, uh, played by Anton Yelkin, the late Anton Yelkin, and he t his family takes in uh, uh, a, a, uh, a tenant uh, played by uh, Anthony Hopkins, and the, uh, we gradually learn over the course of the film that Anthony Hopkins has this kind of sixth sense. He's able to uh, have visions and read people's minds, and gradually the boy starts adopting these um, remarkable, phenomenal abilities as well. And it's just a kind of beautiful mix of both 50s nostalgia and also kind of suspense. And there's certainly elements of the supernatural in it, but also paranoia from uh, the communist scare is in it too. So it's a really nice historical piece and one of King's more sentimental but really effective works. I have not seen Hearts of Atlantis. That's another one I, I, I've been meaning to, to catch yes. and I haven't yet. Yes, done by the great Scott Hicks, also directed Shine. Mm. Okay, uh, number two on my list has already been mentioned once, and that is uh, Misery. Uh, came out in 1990, directed by Rob Reiner. Uh, a little departure for him in in this film. Uh, but again, like you've already said, James Caan, Kathy Bates, um, Annie Wilkes is one of the qui most quiet and subtle psychopaths to ever be put on screen. And Kathy Bates plays her to perfection. Um, one of the the most chilling scene, you already referenced it, is when she breaks his ankles so he can't leave. And she she does it, and, and it's this gruesome scene as she takes a sledgehammer to his legs. But the most chilling part is not that. It's after she finishes and sees him writhing in pain, and she just looks at him and very quietly says, God, I love you. <laughs> and walks out of the yeah. room and you're like, oh, what is wrong with this lady? Um, but I, I just, I love this movie and, and, and that character is so chilling in such a different way than so many uh, psychopaths that are portrayed. Yeah, and what makes her so unique is that she's able to oscillate so uh, seamlessly between uh, this kind of cheerful, sweet uh, nurse who's very helpful and kind and someone who is crazed and psychopathic and mm -hmm. pathological. And uh, Kathy Bates is mesmerizing in the role. It's really, it's, it's a wonderful movie to watch. Um, really interesting that Rob Reiner directed it, uh, showing his versatility as a filmmaker, too. Number two on my list has already been mentioned. It's The Shining uh, by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, the only thing I'm really going to add to it is uh, it's still uh, completely chilling to watch, um, very unsettling. There's, of course, the great, the, the really nice documentary, Room 237, about the conspiracy theories about the making of the film. Um, great performances throughout, uh, visually uh, arresting, and uh, probably the scariest trailer of all time. Uh, if you've ever seen it, uh, it's the scene where the blood is gushing through uh, the elevator. And I read that they uh, fooled the MPA board into approving the trailer uh, by saying it, it wasn't blood. Um, so <laughs> I don't know what they thought it was, but I guess they, the, the people at the MPA were so stupid they believed it. So The jello mold melted. That's uh, Yes. <laughs> there you go. 
Okay, we're building up to number one here. And I want, I gee, a, I wonder what it's going to be. I have a feeling I, I it's really, the same for mm. both of us. For for me, it is... And uh, not just us. Yeah, for, yeah. 1994's Shawshank Redemption. Uh, once again, Frank Darabont uh, takes Stephen King's uh, subtle work and turns it into a masterpiece. This wonderful story about Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, and his friend Red, played by Morgan Freeman, and how he's Dufresne is wrongfully imprisoned and is not able to find a way out, so he creates his way out. Um, and it is... Uh, it's one of the... It's just a great movie. I don't really... I can't really describe why. It's just its just perfect in so many different ways. Dufresne is such a likable character in all of his interactions with all of the characters. You get to uh, see all these different people uh, that he meets in prison, and, and uh, it really humanizes them, and you uh, begin to root for several of them. Uh, it's, it's just an amazing film. I love it so much. It's number one for so many people, and there's a great reason why. Yeah, well, it's number one on my list, too. And uh, I think the reason why people like it so much is because, you know, I think a lot of us in our daily lives live these kind of unexceptional, boring, monotonous lives, and we're kind of stuck in our own prisons. Maybe not literal prisons like Andy Dufresne and Red. But this movie gives you hope. I mean, hope is the key word, and there's a great speech about hope given by Andy. Actually, there's two speeches about hope over the course of the film. And I think people like the idea that at the end of it all, you know, after a 30-year career in something that is maybe dull or something that is uninteresting, that there's some kind of reason to keep going and to keep hope alive. Um, and this movie really illustrates that, uh, you know, you, you keep your head down, you do the job you're supposed to do, even if it's unsettling and even if it's something you don't want to do, but the rewards come um, and, uh, you know, you're the true character of how you respond to these kind of external stimuli manifests itself in the end. And I don't know, maybe it's a little philosophical, but, but I think people have deep personal connections to it, and that's why they love it. The last 10 or 20 minutes of this film is one of the most satisfying endings to any film that you'll watch. Because everything happens the way it's supposed to, yet you don't feel like it's sold out to do it. Yes, and the movie's perfectly cast. Can you imagine any other actors in any of those roles? Even the small roles. Even the, you know, um, even uh, just the, the, the warden, even um, the, the kid that uh, Andy tutors. A perfectly cast film. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, to, uh, to recap here, my top five, number five, Carrie, number four, The Shining, number three, The Green Mile, number two, Misery, and number one, The Shawshank Redemption. And my list was number five, Misery, number four, Cat's Eye, number three, Hearts in Atlantis, number two, The Shining, and number one, The Shawshank Redemption. All right, and those are our Stephen King adaptation power rankings. And now it's time to move on to Oscar trivia. Todd is the master. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oscar trivia. We often talk about how Todd is the master of Oscar trivia, but we're going to see if Zach is the master here. Um, no cheating. No cheating, Zach. Scout's on. Uh, uh, so, uh, the way we do this, we pick a random year of, uh, of Academy Awards and see how much we can, uh, see how much our Oscar expert can come up with. Our random year this year is actually one that has been talked about already on this podcast, and that is 1997. 
Oh, okay. Again, to remind you, we um, when we talk about the 1997 Oscars, we're talking about the ceremony that happened in 1998 that honored 1997 films. So, Zach, are you ready? Yes, I okay, am. Okay, so let's start with Best Picture. Can you name the five Best Picture nominees? Well, the winner was Titanic. Correct. Uh, and Sean Connery uh, announced that Titanic won Best Picture. <laughs> Titanic! Uh, the other nominees were L.A. Confidential, The Full Monty, As Good As It Gets, and I'm forgetting one. Uh, wasn't Boogie Nights, although maybe it should have been. Um, oh, Todd would be very mad at you right now. Oh, boy. Well, uh, it must be an obvious one then. Um, oh, uh, oh yes, I know. Uh, yes, uh, it is the wonderful movie starring Matt Damon and the late Robin Williams called Goodwill Hunting. There we go. All right, we got Best Picture. Let's move on to Best Actor. Can you give us the five best actors? Well, the winner was Jack Nicholson for As Good As It Gets. Correct. Uh, his third uh, Oscar. Um, and the other nominees, I want to say, were Peter Fonda for Yulie's Gold. Yes. Uh, Matt Damon for uh, the aforementioned Goodwill Hunting. Correct. <sighs> okay, and this is where it maybe gets a little challenging. Um, I want to say they were... It's a couple brought, legends. Uh, D- D- Dustin Hoffman for... Uh, uh, the, uh, oh, uh, you, you know, wag the dog. Correct. And one other one I, I know is a luminary, um, but I don't know if I can remember it because I remember that year. Matt Damon was the one that stuck out. He was the young gun, and everyone else was extremely well established. This this man is a film? legend, former winner. Give me initials, maybe. I don't know. Uh, has been nominated one one time since. Doesn't really make films anymore. Uh, initials R D. Robert Duvall for The Apostle. There it is. Yep. Uh, all right. Best Actress. Let's see how you do. Well, the Best Actress that year also went uh, for the f- same film, As Good As It Gets, Helen Hunt. Uh, and it was on all British uh, category, with the exception of Helen Hunt. So that's going to help me a little bit. It that was Kate true. Winslet for Titanic. Correct. Uh, uh, oh, boy. I thought it would help me. Uh, Ju- uh, Judy Dench, Dame Judy Dench for Mrs. Brown. Thank you for correcting yourself. <laughs> Julie Christie for Afterglow. Correct. And, uh, ooh, I'm still missing one. The young gun um, of the group. Well, outside of Kate Winslet. I'm sorry? Another younger actress? Uh, I mean, come on. I got Julie Christie in Afterglow. I that, don't know. That is no. impressive. I mean, that is impressive. Uh, at uh, this point in her career, she was probably most known for uh, Merchant Ivory projects, actually. Oh, Hel- Helen Bonham Carter for Wings of the Dove. There you go. Yeah. Good job. Okay. Uh, best Supporting Actor. Okay, the best supporting actor that year, a loaded category, yeah. but went to the deserving winner, uh, Robin Williams, um, in a great, uh, great performance. Maybe his best performance in Goodwill Hunting. The other nominees were the great Robert Forrester for Jackie Brown, which would have been my personal vote. It's one of my all time <laughs> favorite Jackie Brown characters, Max Cherry. Samuel L. Jackson should have also been nominated for Jackie Brown, but he was not, unfortunately. I'm guessing Todd's vote that year might have gone to Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights, who was nominated. Um, he was sort of the sentimental vote that year. But I also know Todd loves Goodwill Hunting, so that's true. One of the two, that I'm would that, either that or potentially one of the other Boogie Nights characters. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman oh, well, yeah, or yeah. or John C. Riley or someone like that. I'm sure he would have voted for it too. Right. So we've got uh, Robin Williams, Robert Forrester, uh, Burt Reynolds, Greg Kinnear for as good as it gets. Correct. And I'm missing one. It's always that last one. Why couldn't it just be four nominees? Another uh, legend, British. He won winner. six years previous. 
uh, six years previous. Anthony Hopkins for uh, oh uh, for yes for Amistad. Amistad, correct. Sixth, sixth president John Quincy Adams. Okay, moving on. Best supporting actress. Well, as we already mentioned, Kim Basinger won it for L.A. Confidential. Correct. Uh, this is going to be a challenging category. Uh, Gloria Stewart for Titanic. Correct. Mini Driver, she nominated? Correct. For oh, good, okay. For okay. Goodwill Hunting. For Goodwill Hunting. Got lucky there. Um, okay, so we have Mini Driver, Kim Basinger, Gloria Stewart. Uh, this is where it gets challenging. I, uh, Another movie you've already mentioned that we said multiple people could have been nominated for. Not Julianne Moore and Boogie Nights. Julianne Moore and Boogie Nights. Oh, wow. I forgot she was nominated. That's interesting. Okay. And the last uh, the, one, the, I believe, the, 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 I think this might have been her second nomination. Doesn't really do films that would be recognized anymore from a movie family. Joan uh, Cusack for In and Out. There we go. My next clue was going to yep. be it was Ned playing, favorite. Playing the Bride. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Good. There uh, we go. Director. Well, James Cameron. I'm the king of the world. Yes. Uh, Gus Van Sant. Correct. For Goodwill Hunting. Um, let me think of what the other nominees were. Uh, James L. Brooks for As Good As It Gets. Incorrect. Incorrect. Oh. Uh, ha uh, uh, Curtis Hansen for L.A. Confidential. Correct. And what am I missing here? So I said Curtis Hansen, James Cameron, uh, Gus Van Sant... It wasn't the director of the Full Monty, was it? Peter Cataneo, director of the oh, Full Monty. I wasn't going to get that. Oh, I, I didn't know the name. Um, I, this last I don't one's going to be tough. I give up. Um, I give up. Adam Ogoyan for... Oh, for uh, The Sweet Hereafter. For The Sweet Hereafter. Which is an excellent movie. Um, that's probably the best movie out of all the ones we've mentioned. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of it. Love Ogoyan's work. Should have yeah. won. All right, so there we go. You did. You did pretty well. That's a pretty yeah, good Yeah, and turn. let's let's also name the other technical categories: Titanic, 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 and uh, Titanic. There you go. There you go. However, not nominated for screenplay <laughs> or makeup. Curiously enough, well, I think it was nominated for a makeup, but it didn't win, which was the one technical award it didn't win. You're correct. It lost yeah. to Men in Black. There you go. Of Men all, in Black's makeup far things. superior to you know the 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 dead bodies in the water. You know, Men in Black was it was more. CGI, I thought, and computer animation for some of its stuff and makeup. Interesting. Well, you know, Terry, they couldn't give every award to Titanic. Now, could they? That must have. That must have been it. That must have been it. Looking back on this Oscars, the the more uh, notable moments are definitely uh, surrounding Goodwill Hunting, with Robin Williams winning his acceptance speech, with uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck winning his, their acceptance speech. Um, kind of sparked their whole career in a lot of ways. Yes, some very good acceptance speeches from that year. Um, I remember uh, Will and Matt, or uh, uh, Matt and Ben tried to channel Cuba Gooding in their speech, and uh, Robin Williams said, "I still need to see some ID on you." Uh, that was funny. <laughs> but I also remember from that year because I remember watching this ceremony. I've watched every ceremony since 1995. I remember this ceremony because it was the 50 no not 50th 70th anniversary of the Oscars, and they had this big spectacle where they had like a bunch of past winners come out on the stage, and it took literally like 11 minutes, and it was very cool. It was like all the old winners and people were in wheelchairs and were old and unrecognizable, but uh, it was pretty cool. I remember that moment. We are just about out of time, and uh, to send us off, we are going to uh, have our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. I love those redheads. 
quote of the day. Zach, you're, I'm going to let you lead us off since this is your maiden voyage on our uh, podcast here and giving quotes of the day. Todd and I, in our maiden voyage, we gave our uh, sideways quote and our almost famous quote. So I'm going to let you give those quotes for us now. Okay, well, my sideways quote comes uh, toward the end of the movie when they've returned from their magical journey, uh, drinking wine and masquerading with a bunch of women that were probably out of their league. And it's after the car accident, and they're coming up with, uh, you know, explaining why this happened. And, and Miles wants to know, you know, why didn't he get hurt in the car accident that damaged Jack's nose? And Jack's answer is priceless. You were wearing your seatbelt. I love and that. And that's a, that's a, that's a metaphor for the whole movie. I love I love that line. Yeah, it it really is. It really <clears throat> is. And then my line from uh, Almost Famous comes from one of the most underrated characters in the film, Ben Fong Torres of Rolling Stone magazine. And uh, it's when he's trying to tell young William Miller about how to give him the story. And he talks about the mojo. And the mojo is a very modern machine that transmits pages over the telephone. And do you remember how many minutes it takes per page, Terry? Is it 17 minutes per page? 18, 18 minutes oh, per page. It's a close. remarkable, remarkable machine that only takes 18 minutes per page. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. Okay, um, my quote uh, of the day uh, for today is going back to one of the movies I talked about in our anniversary section, and that is Glengarry Glen Ross. Like I said, it is endlessly quotable, and possibly my favorite quote is when Williamson, played by Kevin Spacey, looks at Alan Arkin and tells him to go to lunch three times. And this quote, I love this quote for many reasons. First, it's just a great random break in everything that's going on as uh, Alan Arkin is almost hysterical at this point, talking about the Gestapo tactics. And he, and he just kind of shuts him up by telling him to go to lunch. But also, one of my all-time favorite shows is Inside the Actor's Studio. And when Kevin Spacey was on Inside the Actor's Studio, one of the students in the crowd gave him a, a page out of the script of Glengarry Glen Ross because he wanted Kevin Spacey to tell him to go to lunch three times. And I think he delivered it better on that stage than he did in the movie. And I just love that moment. So, go to lunch, George. There is my, uh, my quote for you for the day. So, that's, a, that's our podcast. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us, Zach. You're welcome. Anytime. Yeah, this was a, this was a lot of fun. Again, uh, you can find our podcast on iTunes, uh, which pretty much means you can find it almost anywhere you look for podcasts. Please rate us and review us so that we can be heard by more people. Um, you can find us on, at almostsideways.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Almost Sideways. You can find all of us on Twitter. Uh, just search for our names. We'll pop up, I'm sure. And that's about it. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. So that was a disaster. Catch you on a Monday.